How can we broaden disciplinary frameworks in the study of media and communication phenomena? About this and many other important questions is this conversation with Monica de la Torre in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with us today Dr. Monica de la Torre. Monica is assistant professor of media and expressive culture at the School of Transborder Studies at Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona. She obtained her BA in psychology and Chicana and Chicano studies at the University of California at Davis, her MA in Chicana and Chicano studies at Cal State in Norwich, California, and her PhD in Feminist Studies at University of Washington in Seattle. She is the author of a recently published outstanding book called Feminista Frequencies, Community Building Through Radio in the Yakima Valley. That was published by the University of Washington Press just last year. She's also the author of a number of peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters and online publications, most recently uh, with Christine Marin, Amazing Grace Keeps the Platter Spinning, a photo essay on radio and television trailblazer, Graciela Gil Olivares, that was published in Feminist Media Histories, an international journal in a special issue on Latina media histories, with guest editors Mary Beltran and Marisol Enriquez. She is the number of uh, recipient of a number of fellowships and grants, including most recently the Pulse Faculty Grant at Arizona State University. And um, we are very, very pleased that she's joining us today. Welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. I'm so excited to be here. And, uh, you know, as someone that uh, writes about radio and podcasts, it's so wonderful to be able to be on one. So this is fabulous. Thank you. We are very excited to have you with us today, Monica. So tell us, how did it all begin? You know, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Well, I almost became a lawyer, uh, like many, uh, you know, first generation college students, oftentimes we, you know, our parents want us to pursue traditional, you know, uh, career paths. And so I got my um, I double majored in uh, my undergraduate degree in psychology. At first, I thought I wanted to be a psychologist, a therapist, and then re realized I didn't. And then I went, um, almost went to law school uh, to the point where I 
submitted. I got in, I almost was going to go and something, a little voice inside of me said not to do it. Um, and so I didn't, I listened to, to that, that voice. And, um, I decided that I was going to work and, um, figure out my life. And so I moved back home with my parents. I was at, um, UC Davis in Sacramento. Uh, that's where I did my undergrad. I moved back to Los Angeles and um, quickly realized that I really missed school, that I missed uh, studying and reading and especially learning about Chicano and Chicano studies. That was, uh, you know, where my um, original uh, just inspiration for uh, learning more about my own history and culture uh, came from was from the Chicano Chicano Studies Department at UC Davis. So um, I really think that that was such a formative experience for me to uh, learn about um, histories that I had never even imagined were were real. And so um, when I quickly learned that I didn't want an office job and then I was bored, I started my master's program at Cal State uh, Northridge in Chicano Chicano Studies, where um, that quickly became, you know, my path. Uh, I, I loved research and writing and I loved teaching. And so I was mentored there by fabulous um, scholars, um, um, Mary Pardo and Juana Mora, and um, being at the hub of one of the hubs of Chicano studies really inspired me to continue the work there. So um, when I started my PhD in feminist studies at University of Washington um, with Dr. Michelle Hewapayan, I learned about a radio station because I had come from LA having done my own radio, uh, community radio uh, volunteering for a, with a group called Soul Rebel Radio. And so it was sort of a combination of my own personal experience and my advisor just seeing an opportunity for me um, to study Chicana radio, Chicana radio broadcasters. That was, you know, something that it's still a growing field, uh, area of, of study, of inquiry. Um, at the time that I was starting to do research on Spanish language radio, really the only other person was Dolores Inés Casillas, who's been a fabulous mentor and, and colleague and, 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 and friend uh, and has really helped me also shape, you know, my, my project. So I just have been very, I think, um, lucky to have come across a lot of different mentors and, and people that have encouraged me to pursue uh, a higher education and a PhD, which, you know, oftentimes we're not encouraged to do that. Wonderful, and it's true that mentors make a huge difference. And I will get to that in a minute, but you had a double major in your BA in Chicana Chicano Studies, then an MA. But for your PhD, you went for a degree in feminist studies, even though I you continue did. working in Chicana Chicano Studies. How's that, you know, how did that come about? Yeah. Well, in my master's program, I was already strongly, um, you know, within the field of Chicana feminist theory and histories. And um, so I, I already knew and I always knew that I wanted to center um, the lives and experiences of, of women in particular. And, and that my training, I really wanted it to be um, one that was a community based and really took into consideration the entire, you know, person and that research is more than just data collection and, you know, sort of this, what, you know, the term that gets used is drive, drive by research, right? Where you go into a community and then you leave and you never come back. 
I really wanted to be embedded in the community. And so um, I, I just, I applied to three PhD programs. So this is where, you know, some of the um, being mentored, but also being the first in my family to uh, go for a PhD really did um, influence my choices. So I, I only applied to three PhD programs and I really, um, I was committed to doing ethnic studies and wanted to do, um, continue to do that work. So I applied to uh, some ethnic studies programs and then I had learned that at the University of Washington, um, this, uh, I didn't know her at the time, but she was a very well-known community um, musician, artist uh, by the name of Marta Gonzalez, who's from the band Quetzal. Um, I, being involved at, in radio, in that you know Chicano scene in LA, um, I heard that Martha from Quetzal went to Seattle because they had funding there for feminist studies. And so sort of word of mouth, I, I hadn't even met her yet, um, but that was the reason I applied to, to the, the women's studies program in, in uh, Washington was I heard they had funding. And so much to the, you know, dismay and uh, at first, you know, not wanting to let me go uh, of my mom, especially for my family, I, you know, moved away again to Seattle, Washington from Los Angeles. So um, again, these choices sometimes are made for us. It, I only got into that one program. Uh, I only got into the, the women's studies PhD, but it was exactly where I, sh I needed to be again, because had I not been there, had I gotten into another program, I think about this a lot, I wouldn't have probably gone to Seattle. Seattle was so foreign to me. So, you know, cold and rainy and <laughs> and not sunny California, right? And so, but I I wanted my PhD. I wanted, you know, that I was driven to, to one day be Dr. De La Torre that I was like, well, I guess I'm moving to Seattle, <laughs> you know, and I just didn't want to, I didn't want to lose momentum. I didn't want to apply again next year. Um, um, and so I think that was just where I was supposed to end up because then I found, you know, um, this community of Chicana scholars and, 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 um, and this radio, you know, station that really no one had ever really, really written about. So I feel like it really it was just meant to be. Wonderful. I was going to ask you the transition from sunny LA to rainy, misty more than rainy Seattle, right? And, and a very different culture, not just different climate, right? Um, how, how was that for you? Hard, <laughs> challenging, uh, definitely a cultural shift. Um, but also one that I, again, I needed, I think I needed to live for myself. I think it really, for me, disrupted the idea of identity in the category of Latina or Latinx or Chicana or Chicano. For a long time, I was part of the, you know, um, part of the, the thinking that, you know, Latinos were in California, we're in the South, we're, you know, in the Southwest, that there's this idea or this narrative that we're not all over the country. And I think moving to Seattle and realizing that, you know, although it was very white and, and has a very entrenched um, history of being, you know, uh, of a very particular, you know, you see Seattle and people have a really strong, you know, it's rainy, it's cold, it's, 
uh, it's cold in a lot of different ways, right? There's this, the, the Seattle freeze, which is, you know, often talked about as people not being friendly. But what I found is that not only were there Latinos there, um, you know, there was just strong community of, of people of color, of, mar- you know, of, of folks that are typically marginalized that were really doing important work that were uh, disrupting these narratives. And once I found out about the station, about the radio station in Eastern Washington, which wasn't Seattle, but um, I started traveling out there, I realized how much a lot of it felt like home, right? Traveling into the, you know, the, the, the Eastern Washington, it, I just got a different sense of the space of, of, of Washington state itself and that our communities are everywhere, especially when there's farm work to be done that you're going to find, you know, a very deeply rooted um, Mexican-American, Chicana, Chicano community. And so um, although the transition was hard, it was, you know, made a lot easier by the women of color, you know, faculty and graduate students that I was able to join and create community with. And again, just having a really robust feminist program that took into consideration all of the various ways that as a first generation Latina student, I was gonna, you know, face some challenges um, that also helped, you know, me with the transition. So although it was difficult um, to be away from family, it felt that I I quickly was able to build similar communities that I had in Los Angeles. That's great to hear. I have several sort of different trajectories that I want to explore in this conversation, but since you already brought this up, how was the journey from the western part of Washington State to the eastern part of Washington State? When did you start making that journey? How did that come about? Um, how was going back and forth in, to a certain degree, uh, informing your thinking and subsequently your research and writing? Right. So that that journey from Seattle to to Granger to the uh, the Yakima Valley, um, I started going out there for research. Um, so I started my program in 2010. I started going out there in 2012 when I interviewed um, Rosa Ramon, who was the first uh, radio station manager of Radio Cadena. She um, was the only woman co-founder um, and was really instrumental in me being able to access a lot of the archival materials that now make up you know, the research in the book and the online archive. Um, she was the station manager for the first five years of the station's um, existence. She kept meticulous records and um, took many hundreds of pictures that we now are able to have um, access to. But we started traveling there together, actually, um, her still having family out there. Um, and that was a really important moment for me in my learning uh, how to do this work in a feminist way, right? It was about um, in Spanish, we have the, the term conviviendo, right? To convivir, to, to um, there isn't a really good English translation, but it's to be in the company of, to, um, you know, to share in the moment with somebody. And so that moment of driving, it takes about three hours, three to four hours from Seattle to, to Granger, depending on the weather, because you go from, you know, this very majestic green green trees everywhere, landscape, mountains. Um, you cross the Cascades into what is, you know, a very 
different uh, environment. It's a lot more dry and the, the, the weather is a lot more extreme. It gets a lot colder and a lot hotter in the summer and in, in the winter. Um, the landscape just completely changes to agricultural fields, right? Um, there's a sign as you're entering Yakima, it's welcome to the Palm Springs of Washington. So even that, I mean, I've made that journey from LA to Palm Springs and, and it really is kind of a similar, you're, you're kind of driving into a more desert-like environment and more of a sparsely populated environment. Um, so then I really was able to appreciate the work that the radio station did for these communities that, you know, in Seattle, it's a lot more compact and city-like, right? even though there's, you know, suburbs and communities are spread out, there still feels like there's more of a central hub. Whereas in the, in the Eastern Washington and central part of, of the state, the, the expansiveness of, of the, of the state is really much apparent. And um, the smaller communities, right. The rural communities are much more carved out. And um, I think knowing that the, that Radio Cadena was able to have a large signal about, um, a large radius of, of, of broadcasting and to be able to see it myself really informed how I was thinking about the work. And so, um, and, and then it was also a moment for me to feel like I was um, just hanging out with like my cousins or my aunts because we would go with Rosa with her family who was really, you know, inviting and, 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 and warm and open similarly to mine where if you come over, you know, we're going to feed you, we're going to, you know, we're going to make you feel at home. And, and for somebody that was far away from home, um, you know, that that moment of, of seeing me not as a researcher, not as a graduate student, but just as somebody, you know, um, that's part of the family was just so important for my own mental health and survival in, in you know, what oftentimes was just such a different environment for me as, you know, somebody that grew up, you know, in, in Los Angeles in a tight knit you know, Latino community. So that was really important for this work as well. So you, pardon the pun, the journey was quite a journey for you. Um, yes. It wasn't just a three, four hours driving, right? It was a cultural, probably personal journey in terms of the embodied experience of the research project that is not purely intellectual. It never is, but in this case, it was quite strikingly embodied and social. Um, right. How do you think that sort of uh, embodied, and in particular the social resonance, right, with environments, social environments earlier in your life, shape the research project? I mean, it allowed me to connect with a lot of these women in a way that I think I couldn't have without those experiences and that social education and that cultural upbringing. You know, um, I was told a lot of times that when I introduced myself, right, as a researcher, not just a researcher, but a feminist, you know, studies researcher, um, that oftentimes can be, you know, off-putting to people, to communities. You know, um, feminism still has a very much you know, dirty connotation, a bad connotation. Um, and, and so what really helped me connect was my background in community radio. Um, the fact that I had that shared experience with a lot of these women was, was how, and the men too, but I think for the women to open up, especially about the, the difficult um, aspects of doing the radio work of facing sexism and, you know, having, 
oftentimes men wanting to, you know, get them fired or, you know, uh, for Rosa, for example, her walking into her working at the station and people walking in asking to speak to the manager and she would say, yes, I, you know, how, how can I help you? And they'd be like, no, you know, I, I really, I want to speak to the actual manager. And she'd be like, that's who I am. And for her to share that with me wasn't easy. And it happened, I think, again, because we were able to spend so much time together traveling to the station, um, you know, driving out to the station together to look for things. But um, I, I really do think that my my own cultural, social experiences um, really just opened up a lot of doors for me that, you know, you're, you're going to people's homes, you're you're for a lot of this work it's about collecting things that they have in their garages or basements or there's a there's a, a big intimacy that happens an exchange that happens of of you know again being invited to people's homes that i take that very seriously and and again i think that isn't just part of the the feminist research methodology but also just my own you know i was taught to be respectful when i go to, into other people's spaces and homes and that's you know that's think of very much a latina mexican american mexican you know um uh cultural touchstone for us is to ha show respect and um not to overstep so i think all of that really prepared me for this for this research that's fascinating because part of the craft of the researcher that you are illustrating so well is that you collect some treasures in the field, whichever field there is and whichever method you use, it doesn't matter. And then you bring those treasures to your own space, the university space, and you try to make sense of it. And in your case, you were sort of um, trying to make sense of it at the intersection of three fields that don't usually connect. This in a single project, which is feminist studies, Chicana Chicano studies, and radio studies slash media, right? Um, in general. How was that part of the journey? Because you at the University of Washington Seattle, you also have a very, very good communication department with people who are specialists right, in the area. So did you engage with them? How was that part of the making sense? you know, dimension of the research experience? Yeah, that's such an important and fundamental question in my work and one that I still to this day, you know, I, my answer will shift. You could ask me this tomorrow and it'd be different. You could have asked me this five years ago and it would be different. But I think for the most part, the intersectional aspect of this work is what makes it both very rich, but also very at times challenging, right? Because um, I'm speaking to, in some ways, multiple audiences, multiple disciplines, but for me, the, I can't untangle them, right? I can't untangle the, the radio station from being a Spanish radio station, from being uh, created by Chicana Chicano activists that were able then within that space to create some moments of feminist activism, right? And they wouldn't see it as that, right? And that was part of the work is that oftentimes, you know, just because I categorize it as feminist doesn't mean that they identified as feminist. And that was part of this process that I really had to come to terms with, right? Because oftentimes I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted them to claim the feminist identity. I wanted them to tell me, you know, I'm a Chicana feminist radio producer, but that wasn't 
part of their identity. That wasn't part of the, um, you know, the, all these terms sometimes are applied in retrospect, right? We, we, we can identify now because time has passed. But um, what I what I found is that for the most part, the field of communication is, and, and most traditional disciplines are very much entrenched in the traditions of the discipline, right? And so oftentimes what these traditions then um, place on researchers are very narrow frameworks, right? Which understandably, if you have an entire field of study like communication, right? You have to put parameters, you have to put a framework, you have to put, right? But what we, what we oftentimes don't recognize or realize is that these frameworks have racist, sexist, um, you know, centering whiteness past, right? That, 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 our, that our field of study oftentimes were started by those that were in power, right? Those that were um, oftentimes didn't look or sound like me. Um, and so what communication, I think, affords us is, you know, the language to talk about the technology. But what I found is that oftentimes it's lacking in its ability to really give us the historical context, give us the, the depth and the breadth that Chicano Chicano studies and feminist studies brings, right? And so for me, all, what, what is always operating is that, yes, I study a technology, I study radio, but that, that um, thing, that object of study doesn't exist outside of its historical, social um, context, right? And that's where I think these other fields of study really buoy communications up to a whole new level of analysis, right? That oftentimes we we get resistance from that, right? Because we're not traditional, you know, communication scholars, because I don't have a degree in blah, blah, blah. And not, not just to communication. This is, I think, um, a, a larger issue of uh, within interdisciplinary research, right? Is that um, we are expected to legitimize ourselves in a certain way that oftentimes doesn't translate to those um, to those disciplines, right? To those more traditional disciplines. So um, again, I think that the work is messy, but it has to be messy because again, I can't talk about why, why is there a radio station, a Spanish language radio station in Granger, Washington? Have you even heard of Granger? Like before I went there, I was like, there's no Latinos in the Pacific Northwest. That's that's the, you know, uh, white boy grunge hub, right? But wait, no, that's not the story, right? Because what, again, what what my, my book tries to do is to make that intervention that, again, just because we haven't heard about it or learned about it or it's in the official archives doesn't mean it didn't exist. And so, um, again, I think oftentimes what traditional disciplines do is that they set us up to do work in a very particular way that, you know, had I just gone to the archive and said, okay, Chicano radio, KDNA, oh, nothing came up. Uh, I guess there's, I guess nothing existed, right? I guess there isn't anything. Whereas, you know, my impulse and my feminist, you know, um, uh, my feminist imperative, and I think um, my, my obligation as a feminist researcher was to then look somewhere else, right? Not just turn my head to the other way or, you know, uh, disrupt again those frameworks that would have told me, yeah, there's probably nothing there. Excellent. And since you mentioned the book and you mentioned an explicit intervention that you tried to make, 
Um, how did you narrow the focus of your dissertation? Did you have a book in mind as you were writing your dissertation? And how was the process of transitioning from a successful dissertation to a successful book project? So three parts of you know, the writing aspect of this conversation, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, that was in and of itself, the narrowing was a lot of, a lot of work. Again, because, because the, when we talk about Chicano community radio, Right. As I mentioned, there was two books. One was written in the 70s on Spanish language radio. Um, and the other one was uh, Ines Casillas's book. Um, and that was pretty much it. There were some articles Mari Castañeda has written about, had written about Spanish language radio. Um, you know, we have George Sanchez writing a little bit about um, Spanish language radio in, in Los Angeles in the 1930s and 40s. Um, again, with the radio brokers, but in terms of Chicana radio broadcasters, I really was a starting from ground zero. Like there really wasn't even, even recognizing the term Chicana radio broadcasters, I think is something that, um, again, with, with the foundation of, of Ines's work, um, I was able to really hone in on. Um, but I just, you know, what really inspired me always to continue this project uh, was just knowing that these women's stories were so important for us to learn about the media production process, right? Um, but also how it was able to um, tag into all these different other social issues and aspects. Um, but I lost the thread of your question. I'm oh, sorry. I mean, it's, it's, no, no, it's perfect. So, so we start with a narrowing of... Right, right, right. The narrowing. To the dissertation. Then the writing of the dissertation, did you have in mind the book or not? And I then oh, transition yeah. from dissertation. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Book. yes. So when I first started the, the, the project, when I was still like very, very early in the dissertation research phase, I uh, found that there was just, you know, that there was more than one station. So KDNA was one of many uh, radio stations. So at one point, I wanted to do a comparative study and compare, you know, KDNA to other, other community-based stations. Unfortunately, you know, be, again, because so much of the I just needed to create a foundation. It was uh, early in this research, it was so hard for me just to articulate what my project was, not because I didn't know what I was researching, but because I really needed to, again, start from the beginning in the sense of like, well, how do we have Spanish speaking, a Spanish speaking community that's big enough for a radio show, a radio station in the Yakima Valley, right? Well, we have to start with migration. We have to start with uh, farm work and labor. And so that takes us back a couple, you know, decades. Um, we have to think about um, what happened in terms of, uh, of uh, broadcasting laws that, right, the Public Broadcasting Act, had that not happened, you know, Chicanos and Chicanas wouldn't have been able to apply for licenses. Um, so I was really, I had this, you know, just um, a desire to cover it all, right? And what I quickly learned is that I couldn't, right, because there was so little written that I needed to really create a strong foundation for the rest of 
my my basically my career and I, I was really lucky in having a lot of, of, of feminist mentoring um, in my department um, through um, this project called Women Who Rock where we would invite scholars to come and comment on our work and development and there I was told you know you have two books already like you don't have just one project it's too much right so hearing that again the importance of mentoring and having other people you know, be able to see beyond what you're, you know, you're kind of seeing at the moment was was really instructional. And so focusing on Cadena really gave me the ability to take the dissertation um, and, and really um, hone in on a particular station that then was going to be illustrative of other moments at other stations, right? So not to say that what happened at Cadena happened everywhere else, but that, um, just having the knowledge that Cadena was part of a larger network is going to, right, that that's going to open up more research, not just for me, but for other scholars, right? And again, that's why I feel the, the archive, the online archive is so important and why I've been so committed to posting and, and you know, putting some of this stuff on online for free, right? Uh, I think oftentimes as scholars, we're for, for good reason, you know, are protective of our work, don't want to share sources, but there's so much to be written about this, about this particular moment and the station even that I, I really do think I can't do this work alone. And I, and I won't, there's, there's no way this, this is a lifetime of work that, you know, could really fuel multiple projects. But um, so again, I'm hoping that this is just the beginning of, of you know, a longer um, research trajectory, but that I'm not the only one that then is writing about uh, community radio and Chicanas and Chicanos and, and these stations. I certainly hope so as well. Um, how's the job market for you? You evidently were successful. Um, how was the experience behind the outcome or that led to the outcome? Yeah. Great question. Oh, a little bit of a traumatizing question <laughs> in terms of Sorry, the you, job market again. Yeah, no, That's okay. Don't need to answer it. <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> um, but I empathize, I sympathize for whoever's on the market now. It's brutal and it's, you know, um, it's a lot. But I was, you know, fortunate to land a tenure track job. Um, I also was, you know, during my graduate work, I... Um, I had a Ford Foundation pre-doctoral fellowship that funded me for three years, which now it's so sad to say rest in peace, right? Because the they're taking away the Ford, um, the fellowship. Uh, without without those types of, of, of funding um, sources, you know, I wouldn't have been, been able to do so much groundwork early on in my graduate program. Um, and so I, I often think about, you know, my trajectory um, and try, you know, not to dwell too much on, on you know, what could have been, but um, I went straight from, you know, finishing the, 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 the dissertation to into a tenure track job. And that was a really challenging transition. Like for a lot of us that do that, um, going from a supportive, for those of us that have supportive PhD programs and environments, you know, going from that to having community, to having friends, you know, all your grad school buddies, um, to again, going to an, a new location, a new geographic location, one that's completely different from the one you're currently in, right? I went from rain to sun, uh, you know, it's extreme sun, extreme heat, um, which also you don't think how that's going to affect like your ability to create community, right? If it's 
hot or cold out, right? If it's snowing or one extreme or the other, um, people don't don't tend to come out as much, right? So the intention behind community building is different. Um, but for the most part, I've been very, um, you know, fortunate to have, again, been able to find community at ASU, find the people that, you know, have been helpful in this journey that as a, you know, first generation professor now, you know, um, really learning because I did this in my master's program. Okay, who are, are, who are my people? Who's my community? Who are like-minded, you know, individuals that are going to be able to tell me, hey, did you know this? Or um, did you know about this resource? I really do think that the one, you know, biggest, biggest tool that we can do to challenge the lack of diversity in higher ed is to create communities, right, with each other and for each other. Um, this isn't going to solve the structural issues, but I think once you find people that are willing to share resources and um, educate you on the language of the university, because each institution has its own, you know, language, um, I think that I was able to to make the transition okay. But, you know, that, that first year or two years, I always, you know, now that I talk to people early in their careers, I'm just like, take time, like, take a break. I actually take a break from the dissertation. I think that's what also helped me very much in converting the dis into a book was that I, I, I stopped reading it. I stopped looking at it for a good, at least full semester, if not a full year. Um, and maybe I looked at it a little bit after a few months, I started reading it and I was, you know, it was suggested to me to print it out and highlight all the sentences that I thought were book book sentences, right? And so even just sitting there and just doing that um, just really helped me um, figure out what where where my book within the dissertation was. And I know you asked if I had a book in mind when I was writing the dissertation. And I want to say that I did because of the mentoring, again, that my mentor uh, always said, you know, it's your dissertation, but just already start talking about it as your book, right? Even before I filed the dis, you know, she really encouraged me to think of it as a book. And so that really helped in in getting getting it into shape and getting it you know shaking the dissertation off of it and you know really um getting it to the place where i was able to then you know go to publishers and and, and presses and 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 um have it you know have it be uh successful within that that area of getting a book contract and i, I was able to get an advanced contract with the university of washington and they have just been so such a great press and so supportive and you know, even deciding that, right, going with Washington versus maybe, you know, we have, there's other presses that are more flashy or that we know more readily, but given that the project was going to be centered um, and central to Pacific Northwest history, just Washington just felt like the best place for it. And they've been, again, just, it's been a year now since the book has been out and I've gotten, you know, so much press, both, you know, media, local press, and, you know, um, it's it's been really wonderful to get that kind of support again as a first time pub uh you know author as um they were just really wonderful so um definitely challenging but i i think i i again have been fortunate to find always find community to help terrific and you know we talked about a number of topics that constitute sort of the core of our you know professional craft so if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like 
the scholarship, media, communication, change, to transform, to evolve, what would you wish for? Yeah, I think that's such a great question and one that, you know, I've been thinking about knowing that I was going to do this, um, this podcast and having the question in advance. I've been thinking about it and, you know, there's so much to do in all fields um, in terms of, of, of changing the field. But I think for humanities-based work, the biggest challenge right now is funding. And I think what I would change is just I would grant everyone a million dollars to do research. No, I don't know how much. Even that's too little, right? Uh, think bigger. Um, but I would really, I would create a mechanism to financially support this work because I think one of the biggest challenges with, with doing work that is outside of the traditional or that is, you know, outside of of the box in a lot of ways or that brings together different disciplines, I think, um, that work is, it takes a different type of, of undertaking, right? And it, it really necessitates, I think, so that we're not doing this work, right? Borrowing scanners as I did, or, you know, going to libraries and trying to, you know, get the right program to, you know, um, save these images that I'm trying to scan or finding librarians that are willing to show me, you know, how to do all this. It would have I just think a lot about, and again, not to center myself, but I think about how much easier this would be. And I had great, you know, I had great resources at my disposal, but I, I often think about, you know, if we had some of this, um, the monies that we reserve for other sciences or disciplines, I, I often think of how much more we could do, right? And how um, how this work would just be so much more um, disseminated much more widely and unknown. So I, th I think that's my answer because I think it's easy to, you know, say, well, the field of media or communication is lagging and blah, blah, blah. And it's easy to point fingers and I don't want to do that. I'm very grateful for, you know, the the, the different fields I, I'm a part of. I, I'm very much, I think we've all tried to push the envelope in, in a certain way, but I think where where we get stuck a lot of times is just not having resources. So Excellent. Yeah. A great wish, Monica, and I, and I wholeheartedly agree with you. Thank you for a great conversation. Thank you to our audience for staying with us uh, through the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Once again, Monica, thanks a lot. Thank you all. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Swenson.